Welcome to Financial R&R, a show dedicated to financial insurance and risk management solutions and trends shaping the market today. Here are your hosts, Ron Boris and Ryan Farnsworth. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the latest uh, episode of the Financial R&R. Uh, my name is Ron Boris and I lead the Financial Institutions Vertical at Alliant, along with Ryan Farnsworth. Uh, we're thrilled to have two special guests today from ICI Mutual. Many of you will be heading uh, out to the ICI conference later this month, and we thought, what better way to start that session, start that event off by, by interviewing two of the, the best intellectuals when it comes to insurance for mutual funds. Dan Steiner, who's the president of ICI Mutual Company, and John Mulligan, who's the senior vice president and chief underwriting officer, both of which have been with the company for a very long time. So Dan, John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. So Dan, I, I thought maybe we could start with you and, and give us a little background on ICI Mutual. I, I think a lot of folks know a little bit about who you are and what you all do, but after you know this being uh, our 35th year of existence, maybe you can give a little background on, on ICI. Sure. The ICI Mutual was formed back in 1987 under the auspices of the Investment Company Institute, which is the uh, global trade association for the mutual fund industry. ICI Mutual itself is what's often referred to as a industry mutual insurer, that is a, a, an insurer that's owned and governed by its insureds, and that is dedicated solely to addressing and serving the insurance and risk management needs of a particular industry, in this case, $34 plus trillion mutual fund industry. As you and Ryan know, like successful industry mutuals serving other industries, um, including mutuals for law firms, colleges, and universities, ICI Mutual differs uh, both in its structure and its mission from the commercial insurance companies with which it competes. ICI Mutual is structured and designed to provide protections and benefits for its insureds, who are also its owners, particularly in the areas of coverages, claims handling, insurance capacity, and pricing. And today, I mean, as after 35 years of operation, as in the past, ICI Mutual is the fund industry's leading provider of directors and officers, errors and omissions, liability insurance, commonly known as DNO, ENO insurance, independent director liability insurance, and investment company blanket bonds. And today we have more than 100 fund groups collectively manage over 60% of the fund industry's assets under management who choose to insure with ICI Mutual. And many of those clients are, are our clients as well, right? And I think there, there tends to be sometimes some confusion around how the ICI Mutual works with insurance brokers. Obviously, you're with us. We're, we're playing nice in the sandbox here, right? So <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what the company's distribution strategy is, John, and how it works with insurance brokers on behalf of, of those mutual clients? Yeah, thank you for asking that, Ryan. As an industry mutual insurer, ICI Mutual is structured to work directly with representatives of its member insureds. But as you noted, uh, we certainly recognize that many fund groups have brokers like Alliant to assist them with their insurance programs. And in many cases, we can and certainly do work jointly and effectively with brokers to address the insurance needs of uh, our mutual clients. Uh, we just don't pay you. Um, I make light of that since commercial insurers pay commissions to brokers, but I also note that in many instances, you and other brokers can and do to arrange, do arrange to collect a fee for service uh, in lieu of a commission. Uh, I certainly know that you work with certain fund groups in this manner. We serve as a hub of information for the entire industry. We provide our own insured fund groups as well as fund groups that choose not to insure with us with an array of industry-specific information, including peer profiles on insurance limits, other information on fund industry risks and claims. We regularly share this information with Alliant and other brokers, 
And at the end of the day, as you noted, we're all working towards the same end, to assist fund boards and advisors in making business judgments about how to best make considered decisions on insurance-related matters. Yeah, no, that's great, John. And, and I can tell you, having done this now at Align and, and certainly in other places, the industry moved to a fee-based model for 40 Act Mutual Funds a, a long time ago. I think the, the board's governing uh, the funds felt that that was the, the the best and most transparent approach. So certainly never any any barriers there. One of the misnomers that maybe you can clarify is, do you have to be a member to work with ICM Mutual? A lot of times people say, oh, well, mutuals have members. And I know there are founding members, but maybe you can kind of just explain that structure a little bit, because I know there there's an option to become a member. Somebody wants to become a member, but uh, it's not necessarily a requirement in order to trade with ICI Mutual. So ICI Mutual is a member-insured mutual insurance company. So we have two classes of members, participating members and non-participating members. That the, the central hub is the Investment Company Institute, the Trade Association. Members of the Trade Association can come to insure with ICI Mutual either as a participating member that is capitalizing their ownership in the company or as, as a non-participating member uh, where they just buy annual insurance pro- policies from ICI Mutual. And there's, and there's no difference between those two um, memberships in terms of the underwriting, uh, in terms of the claims handling, uh, in terms of the educational and uh, risk management services that are, are provided. There are some differences in terms of overall voting shares uh, as members of the company and the ability and in the ability to receive dividends if and, and when those are declared by ICM Mutual's board of directors. Yeah, no, that, that's great. I appreciate the, uh, the clarification there. So let's move on to the fun stuff, Dan. You've been a lawyer who's been sort of practicing in this space for for, for many years. The big question we get coming out of board season, you know, a lot of mutual fund boards are having their renewals right now or have their renewals coming up in the next, you know, 30, 45, 60 days. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the claims environment and what you've seen sort of recently. Certainly a lot of different sort of avenues to, to go down, but, but maybe we can spend some time there. Yeah, let me just kick things off by noting that ICI Mutual has long tracked and shared information on all significant civil lawsuits and regulatory enforcement proceedings involving fund groups, regardless of whether the fund groups are insured by ICI Mutual. And and based on this information, each April, we publish an overview of uh, recent mutual fund industry claims developments. That publication is called Claims Trends. It's available on our website at icimutual.com, and that's a great resource for brokers, for insureds, for folks who insure with ICM Mutual, for folks who don't. In terms of the recent claims environment, interestingly enough, uh, we haven't seen much to date in the way of pandemic or cyber-related claims involving fund groups, at least as uh, regards claims involving insurance products that ICM Mutual writes, that is, DNO, ENO policies, IDL policies, and bonds. What we have seen is a continuation of this phenomenon we sometimes refer to as waves and one-offs or one-offs and waves. On the one hand, we've seen a number of one-off claims across a range of subject areas relating to individual issues at individual fund groups. These include several lawsuits by activist investors against uh, closed-end funds or their directors or or advisors challenging uh, bylaw amendments adopted by the funds. We've seen shareholder lawsuits challenging fund disclosure, including, for example, a recent lawsuit alleging that a fund group engaged in so-called closet indexing, although this closet indexing suit, as it turned out, ended up being dismissed pretty quickly. And as always, we've seen some one-off regulatory investigations or enforcement actions by the SEC. Uh, We're all certainly watching closely to see whether enforcement may ramp up 
under what's still a relatively new SEC leadership following the change in the uh, presidential uh, administration. It is uh, important, and Ron and Ryan be interested in your reaction and thoughts on this, if you take a longer-term view of our industry, separate and apart from one-off claims involving individual fund groups, the industry has also been susceptible over the years to what we might call waves of claims, that is to periods where multiple substantially similar claims involving substantially similar allegations are brought by the plaintiff's bar or in some cases by regulators against multiple fund groups. And in fact, by our count, there have been more than a half a dozen separate and distinct waves of fund industry claims so far this century, including most recently a wave of more than two dozen so-called excessive fee lawsuits that were initiated by the plaintiff's bar in the 2010s. That wave charged more than two dozen fund advisors with uh, violating a specialized provision of federal law governing the fund industry, a provision of the Investment Company of Act, Act of uh, 1940, known as Section 36B. Uh, beginning to end, that wave lasted a decade. Uh, the good news for the industry is that the plaintiff's bar ultimately achieved no major breakthroughs, but many of the individual lawsuits in the wave were fiercely litigated for years. And unusually for big ticket litigation, some of the lawsuits actually went all the way through court trials at which the advisors ultimately prevailed. Yeah, it was definitely a, an unfortunate time for people on the insurance side, because to your point, Dan, you know, most of the times plaintiffs are, are bringing litigation for a purpose. And it seemed like the, the sort of outcome was um, an excessive amount of fees incurred, whether it was defense expenses or, as we know, um, what we refer to as non-party witness fees, which, which certainly was uh, what impacted the fund-only uh, DNO policies. Yeah, as an aside, I would note that these 36B lawsuits shouldn't be confused with the separate weight of excessive fee lawsuits that have received attention in the industry press, but which are brought under a completely different federal law, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, uh, also known as ERISA. Uh, these ERISA cases, which you and Ryan well know, um, are not directed at funds or fund directors, but they challenge the management by advisors or their affiliates of their own in-house 401k retirement plans that they have in place for their own employees. Uh, and they implicate fiduciary liability insurance, which ICI Mutual doesn't offer uh, rather than mutual fund DNO, ENO insurance. Yeah, no, that, that's a great distinction and, and clarification, John, because like I said, th those cases, we, we continue to see them and, and those are probably not going away anytime soon, but certainly uh, didn't impact necessarily the, the, the world in which mutual funds and, and registered investment advisors purchase coverage. Yeah, I mean, I think one, just return to your point, Ron, you know, defending shareholder lawsuits can be a very expensive proposition for fund groups between, as you pointed out, the legal defense costs incurred by funds, advisors, or directors and officers uh, when they're named as defendants. You have legal, uh, you have fees charged by retained defense experts. And as you noted, you have cost of counsel for fund independent directors as non-party witnesses. In the uh, Section 36B cases I just mentioned, for example, it was not uncommon to see defense costs reach into eight figures for fund groups in individual cases. So when you're looking at DNO ENO insurance and selecting insurers, that's certainly you know, impacted the primary layers and into some of the first excess layers. So it's worth focusing on, in our view, uh, regardless of which insurer you choose, it's worth focusing on when and how defense costs are covered and on an insurer's claims handling reputation covering them. Yeah, that's a, a great point, Dan. And, and, and as we've looked at the reports that you all put out annually, it, it's pretty consistent that the two largest areas of losses paid are in the area of defense expenses. And, and then the other one is, is usually cost of corrections claims. And 
know, maybe we can kind of just narrow in and focus on cost of corrections a bit because we know, right, there's been uh, certainly a, a lot of volatility in the market over the last two years. Um, COVID certainly brought on some element of, of volatility. And then certainly what's going on in Europe with the war in Ukraine is, is, is affecting the market pretty regularly. But we also know the cost of corrections have become more than just market volatility, trade error type losses. So maybe we can just talk a little bit uh, about cost of corrections. Sure. And and just as a final note, just before we jump into cost of corrections, um, this whole idea of the plaintiff's bar and shareholder litigation, it's been with us. It will always be with us, no doubt. And uh, there's an overview we did uh, for those who are interested a year or two back entitled Shareholder Litigation in the Fund Industry. Provides a, a good introduction to that whole subject of shareholder litigation in our industry thus far in the tw- in, uh, uh, since the year 2000. Uh, it's designed for the non-specialist reader. Um, you know, turning to cost of corrections, look, you know, given the complexity of fund industry operations, the sheer number of transactions that take place every day, it is certainly not surprising that investment advisors sometimes commit operational errors. And as you pointed out, Ron, these can come in the form of trade errors, but they can also come in the, lots of other forms, inadvertent violations of investment restrictions, corporate action processing mistakes, or other mishaps in the delivery of professional services uh, to funds and clients. Cost of corrections insurance, as you and Ryan appreciate, Ron, while it's not limited to the asset management sector, is fairly uncommon outside of it. In essence, the coverage is an early stage errors and omissions coverage that facilitates an advisor's timely and efficient remediation of an operational error. It permits them to pursue insurance recovery under their DNO and insurance uh, policy for corrective payments they may, may make to remedy their errors, even in the absence of a conventional insurance triggering event in the form of a lawsuit by the affected fund or client. This coverage has been a standard feature of ICI Mutual's DNO and policy for decades. And it, as you know, in today's market, it's also generally available from commercial insurance companies, although the scope coverage and terms, conditions of that coverage can vary by insurer. Yeah, and, and the one thing I would add, John, and, and certainly where, where we advocate cost of corrections is um, the partnership between insurer and insured, right? At, at the end of the day, when you engage and, and enter into a contract like this, both sides want to resolve issues uh, at the best possible outcome. And the cost of corrections provision allows insureds, whether they're funds or advisors, to partner with an insurance company, identify an issue that came up and try to put that issue uh, to bed or, or rest and resolve it without it becoming a more formal action, which could lead to additional costs and or reputational harm. So I, I just think cost of corrections has been and continues to be a, a great enhancement, a great feature, a focal point of the, the 40 Act Fund uh, community. It certainly is spilled over and, and, and taken sort of form in, in the alternative space as well. And uh, to your point, we, we continue to sort of advocate that approach because we, we do think it's the best way for insurers and insurers to resolve challenging situations that arise in the ordinary course of business. And Ron and Ryan, you may want to speak to this. I mean, it's certainly, I would just you know, note for listeners, it's, it's very important regardless of uh, your insurer on the cost of corrections to make sure you get the notifications uh, right because it is an early stage coverage and you really want to make sure you're working closely with your broker or your intermediary or directly with your insurer to make sure that you let the insurer know when you have a problem and before you make a correction. Yeah, one of the biggest complaints we get about DNO claims is how long they take to pay, generally speaking, right? But cost of corrections claims are ones that need to be paid 
um, almost in real time and, and the notification of such of such issues should be addressed very quickly and, and anticipated in advance of any uh, error occurring. And, and as much, Dan and John, as we look forward to the claims trends report every April, I just want to note for our listeners too, you did come out with a supplemental publication off cycle, if you will, on the operational errors and in insurance and how cost of corrections claims, I believe that was last summer. I'm sure it's still available on your website and, and can be downloaded for, for review. So uh, definitely a key topic that that will fortunately or unfortunately be part of the insurance policy for many years to come as as long as funds are trading securities. Yeah, and I will I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting as an insurer, we of course look at both claims frequency and claim severity, regardless of the type of claim. And over our 35-year history, we've received and paid scores of cost of corrections claims. Uh, what's interesting is while their frequency has remained relatively stable over time, what we have seen in more recent years in a, in a marked break from our past experience is increased severity. Uh, and indeed, we've seen multiple instances of what we term high severity cost of corrections claims, by which we mean claims that have involved or that have had the clear potential to involve dollar amounts of eight figures or sometimes even more. This is very significant on the shock loss, really, from an insurance perspective, when you have uh, cost of corrections claims uh, that severe. Given that multiple such claims have now occurred, uh, unfortunately, we can no longer view them as black swan events. Uh, and indeed, recent experience suggests that high severity operational errors uh, may now be a risk inherent in modern fund industry operations, regardless of the strength of fund groups' uh, operational risk management programs. Cost of corrections, like Section 36B, is a complex and specialized risk, and one is that, that it's essentially limited to the asset management space. Uh, and it's not surprising it's receiving increased attention among insurers, commercial insurers, reinsurers, and insurance brokers. And as you noted, uh, Ryan, over the past year, uh, we have been, uh, we've done the publication as part of an overall campaign to assist all concerned to better understand uh, this risk and frankly, the underwriting and pricing challenges uh, it presents uh, for everyone uh, if the uh, coverage is going to continue to be provided well into the future. Yeah, I mean, we spend so much time over these last few minutes talking about claims activity affecting the fund space, the regulatory activity that's expected to continue, not to mention the, the broader DNO insurance marketplace that's been quite volatile over the last couple of years as, as our uh, customers um, can attest, but very curious to get your perspective because I say mutual has long had the tradition for being less volatile in market cycles in the broader commercial marketplace. How, how has the ICI mutual and the fund industry managed the, the, the volatility of the broader insurance marketplace over the last couple of years? Yeah. Thank you for asking. I think that the commercial insurance market has been difficult for everyone over the past few years, buyers, brokers, and insurers alike. Uh, in our specialized niche, which by which I mean the fund industry's insurance market for DNO, ENO insurance, IDL insurance, and fidelity bonds, uh, the conditions continue to harden through 2021, um, and they've eased somewhat to you know to the extent to an extent over the latter part of the year. As a practical matter, the pandemic-fueled hard market of the past 18 months has resulted in most fund groups, regardless of insurer, experiencing premium increases, particularly on their DNO, ENO insurance. Typically, those are in the single to low double digits. Uh, depending on the particular fund group's asset center management, claims experience, and other factors, uh, with lesser percentage increases for IDL insurance and fidelity bonds. But there has been no significant disruption in insurance or reinsurance capacity, that is the supply 
or coverage terms for any of the three products that ICI Mutual offers, and there's been ample insurance and reinsurance capacity remaining. Like other industry mutuals, we can't totally insulate our member insurers from the impacts of hard market phases of the market cycle, but we do think that like other industry mutual insurers, ICI Mutual by its structure and design serves as a strong stabilizing presence in its market niche so as to temper the volatility of the insurance market cycle for its member insurers and for the broader fund industry. I would say in this regard, it's interesting to compare and contrast mutual fund DNO ENO insurance with what's been going on for buyers of other business insurance products, including as particularly relevant for investment advisors, standalone cyber insurance and fiduciary liability insurance, neither of which is offered by ICA Mutual, but for certainly for which you broke for our mutual clients. Do you have comments on that? Yeah, no, listen, cyber has certainly overtaken the boardroom um, without a doubt. Um, and, and mutual fund boards are, are not excluded from that for, for good reason. Um, but, but to date, um, we're still not aware of any fund complex directly. I mean, certainly plenty of advisors and service providers have had um, events, cyber events, breaches, et cetera. We, we have not seen that spill over into the fund uh, world itself. You know, never say never, right, Dan? There's plenty of things that have occurred over the years that have surprised us all with regards to risk. And that's why liability underwriting, uh, liability risk is a very difficult thing to, to do. But yeah, no, I, I think, John, are there any other key coverages that you think directors or service providers should be focusing on in the current environment outside of cyber? I mean, you certainly offer fidelity bonds. Um, you've offered fidelity bonds for, for advisors and, and funds for a long time. We know social engineering continues to be a, a big area of focus and concern. Ron, that's a good point uh, you, you raised. I mean, to date, the cyber incidents in the fund industry uh, has, been, has been low. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But with regard to the breadth of protections, there are important cyber-related protections offered under uh, the investment company blanket bond. Uh, and ICI Mutual and others in the market have certainly addressed uh, social engineering risks uh, under the fidelity bond. Again, to date, the risk has remained relatively low. Is likely because the fund industry has zero tolerance uh, for fraud and that the protections that have been instituted at fund groups uh, are very robust. Uh, so there are protections under uh, the fidelity bond with related to the, uh, the theft of dollars by imposters or the theft of dollars by hackers that are important risk transfer considerations, uh, but to date um, have not been needed. Oh, that's great, John. Dan, anything you want to cover from a from a DNO ENO policy perspective? Again, you know, kind of looking at you know the future and, and where should directors be focusing their time, effort, and energy on, on DNO ENO coverage? Well, let's see, uh, John and I'll tag team, see if we can tick through some of the key coverages quickly. I, I'd kick things off by mentioning again coverage for defense costs. That is the legal fees and associated costs incurred by insureds and defensive claims or fund directors as non-party witnesses in claims, uh, obviously critically important. Uh, it's also important, as I mentioned, to focus on whether policies make appropriate provision to advance defense costs while underlying claims are in progress and on the reputation of individual insurers for getting defense costs reimbursed fairly and promptly. Coverage for shareholder lawsuits, uh, challenging fund prospectus disclosure. Uh, it's pretty much a standard coverage in mutual fund DNO ENO policies as it should be. Deed for funds and fund directors as compared to fund advisors. Prospectus liability claims probably present the most significant risk for claim severity. Also, another key coverage is scope of coverage for regulatory investigations and proceedings. 
Some policies clearly cover informal and well as formal regulatory investigations, which can be a very important distinction, as you both well know, since fund groups can incur significant defense costs during the informal phase of investigations, and because there are many reasons that fund groups and their counsel may wish to try to keep an investigation informal for as long as possible. And I'll just wrap up by bulleting a couple of more items here. Uh, as we discussed earlier, cost of corrections coverage is a coverage that's uh, highly valued by fund advisors. Certainly worth focusing on since the scope terms and conditions of the coverage can and do vary among uh, insurers and among policies. For fund independent directors themselves, it's important to make sure that coverage is provided for non-party witness costs and expenses, since directors can sometimes get embroiled in lawsuits and investigations without being named as defendants. And uh, for funds themselves, some DNO, you know, policies help defray expenses for the costs of shareholder derivative demand investigations and certain internal investigations, which are both certainly helpful coverages. And of course, beyond the provisions of policies themselves, the overall reputation of individual insurers for claims handling is certainly uh, key. Brokers, you know, you folks and other brokers, uh, outside counsel, and uh, others can help fund groups in these kinds of assessments. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. Well, well, listen, we're just about out of time. Um, for those of you who are listening in and uh, using this as a, an opportunity to prepare for the, uh, the ICI conference that comes up later this month, uh, be on the lookout for, for Ryan Farnsworth and, and, and many others from our Alliant team. We'll have another big presence there. We love supporting this event. We think it's such a, a great way for people to stay informed and, and keep up to date with all the things that are going on from a risk management perspective relative to, to the 40 Act Mutual Fund space. And for those of you looking for more information on, on Alliant, um, you can visit our website at www.alliant.com. But, but with that, we'll, we'll wrap things up. John, Dan, listen, our goal is always to help our clients find the more rewarding way to manage risk. You certainly are two of the best in the business to help uh, folks do that in the 40 Act Mutual Fund space. We really appreciate your time here uh, with, with Ryan and I, and I uh, you know, hope you guys have a great year.